Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We're currently studying verse by verse through the book of Esther, the story of God's perfect work through imperfect people. So open your Bible and join us as we remind ourselves that in every situation, God is in control. All right, for those of us that are still in the room, let's open up to the book of Esther, chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some in the back uh, that you're welcome to, to grab. And if you don't have a good translation at home, you can keep that. That's our gift to you. The words will also be up on the screen. It's always, a good, it's always good practice to not take the preacher's word for it, though, uh, and to follow along. So uh, Esther chapter 9, if you're visiting with us this morning, we, we generally, it's our practice just to preach right through books of the Bible. And so uh, we come up with really creative sermon series uh, like this one's just called Esther, uh, super creative, and, uh, and so we're almost done with the book of Esther. We're, we've got the end of chapter 9 today. Next week we'll cover chapter 10, which is only three verses, and we will be uh, through this book. And so you're coming in kind of right at the end. We'll try to get you up to speed when we get going here and make sure you know what's going on in the story. Uh, but Esther chapter 9, if you're there, starting in verse 20, we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Once you've got it, let's stand up together. We stand to read God's word. It's become a tradition here, uh, but it's a tradition we don't want to ever become a meaningless tradition. We do this to, as a tangible reminder of where the authority lies in this church. It lies in God's word. In the same way, if the President of the United States walked into this room, we'd all be expected to stand. Uh, we stand as a tangible reminder of ourselves that God's word is the ultimate authority uh, in our lives. And so, Esther chapter 9, verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year. And these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews in all 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, Words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The commands of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you that... that that, Lord, it's true, your word has power, your word has authority, your word is life-changing, that every word in this book is from you to us. And so, Lord, we, we stand in submission to your word, we trust your word, we say, God, speak to us by your Holy Spirit from your living word. God, I pray for myself as I preach, let the words of my mouth, let the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we will get into giving you a little background. I trust many of you are familiar with the story of Esther. 
but we will try to get you up to speed. If you're just visiting for the first time, this is kind of a weird passage, uh, I'm sure. Before we do that, though, I want to talk about yesterday. Yesterday was a significant day. How many of you know that yesterday was a holiday? How many of you know that, that the holiday that was celebrated yesterday is one of the most significant days in the Christian calendar out of the whole year? A few of us knew that. Yesterday was Reformation Day. October 31st uh, is, is called Halloween by many. It's actually Reformation Day. Reformation Day uh, commemorates an event that happened 498 years ago yesterday uh, when a German monk named Martin Luther nailed some pieces of paper to the door at the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. It was called his 95 Theses, 95 statements about the abuses that were going on in his church, in the Roman Catholic Church, protesting these abuses. Soon these, these 95 theses that he, that he printed were copied down by some of his students. Uh, they made use of the new printing press that had just been invented, and copies of this began to spread all over Germany and then all over Europe and eventually throughout the whole world. And the result was what is called the Protestant Reformation. So churches like ours exist because of what happened 498 years ago yesterday. It was a, a, a significant event in the history of the church. We, we had our own little celebration this morning. The song we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, is one of the, the great anthems of that Reformation written by Martin Luther. It's called the Protestant Reformation. It literally means protestant. They were protesting. Protesting the theological abuses of the Roman Catholic Church that had distorted the gospel of Christ for centuries, had really ushered in the Dark Ages, this time of just uh, darkness and death and, and disease. And, and it had really been ushered in by some of these mispractices of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, well, the Protestant Reformation then sparks this move, this recovery of the gospel for the, for the first time after a thousand years of distortion, and it really changed all of civilization. The whole world changed because of this religious movement. It wasn't just something happening behind the doors of the church. It changed the whole world, uh, and the darkness of the Dark Ages gave light, gave way to the light. And so, uh, it really was a revolution. And so the church celebrates Reformation Day. It's a good day for us to celebrate as Christians, to celebrate. I was so happy yesterday as I saw posts popping up all day long on social media from people in our church writing, Happy Reformation Day. <laughs> good. Good. I'm glad that you know. And so, so the church has celebrated this since the time of the Reformation for a couple reasons. One is to rejoice in what God had done. God did a significant, a marvelous, and earth-shattering work in the Protestant Reformation. But the other reason for celebration, the other reason for remembrance, is so that we don't forget. So that we don't forget what happened. We don't forget where we were and where we came from. So we don't forget what it used to be like and what God had to do to overcome that. And the truth is, it's very easy for us to forget. Forgetting is one of the best things we do as humans. If I don't have my, I've always got an extensive to-do list, and, and if I don't have that with me, I will forget. If I don't write it down, uh, it's going to be forgotten. So if you ever catch me right before the service on a Sunday morning, which by the way is the worst time to try to talk to a pastor if you think they're going to remember what you're saying, and you say, hey, will you announce this? And I don't say, follow me so I can write it down, it's not getting announced. There's just zero chance. I will forget. Forgetting is one of the best things I do. It's one of the best things people do, period. And when we forget, what do we do? We go back. Those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. It's a truism, not just in the church, in the world. And we forget. One, one great illustration of this that's going on uh, in our country as we speak. Many of you remember exactly where you were on September 11th, 2001, when you got the horrible news of what was going on. I remember I had been sick that morning and got to work a little bit late. And my boss not only had the TV on in our, in our lounge, I was a manager at a basketball club at that time. He had the TV on in the lounge. He had pulled another TV out on the countertop. There's two TVs going. And I said, what are you watching? Is this like a movie? What are we watching here? Uh, I remember, I will never forget that moment. And most of us remember, and, and we say things like, never forget. And this thing that kind of came out of that, if you see something, say something. 
This sort of thing of we need to be vigilant. We need to be aware. There is terrorism going on in our world. There are people who mean us harm. If you see something, say something, and we thought we will never forget. We will never forget this. This has changed the way that we live. But actually, we've forgotten some pretty significant details about that time, about what happened, about some of the commitments we made as a nation. We used to say, if you see something, say something. Now our motto is, if you say something, you're a racist. We've made a significant change in the world. One, one great example of this, a young man named Ahmed Mohammed, 14-year-old student from Texas, brought a briefcase to school. He had made a clock. He had made a clock and a briefcase, and he, and he brought the briefcase with him to school, and his teacher saw it and was very alarmed by this clock. Uh, alarmed by the clock. <laughs> it's for you, Mike Drake. It's not even on purpose. I'm just hanging with you too much, I guess. The teacher was startled by the clock that she saw. Took him down to the office, to the administrators. The school officials questioned him, and he refused to answer questions. He became antagonistic, and they called the police, and he wouldn't answer the police, and he was antagonistic with the police and wouldn't answer their questions, and the police took him away to a youth detention center. Later then, they released him to his parents. They decided, no, this is legitimately a clock. Okay, you can go home to your parents. However, the parents contacted the news media, and everybody freaked out. Everyone freaked out. This, this, this administration, these police officers, they're all racists. Now, I want to be clear before I say anything else about this. It really was just a clock. It really was a 14-year-old kid who had made a clock, but that's not the issue. If you go to that next picture, this is what the clock looked like, the bottom right-hand corner. I don't know how well you can see it on our screen. Uh, the clock looks a, a lot like a briefcase with a whole bunch of wires in it, and and looks like a bomb, and that's what they thought it was. They didn't actually think he brought a bomb. They thought you brought something that looks like a bomb, and you're not allowed to do that. And and so everybody lost their mind over this. A a child brings a clock, and everyone freaks out. The result was President Obama inviting him to the White House. I love his, in a tweet, he did it in a tweet. Cool clock, Ahmed. Want to bring it to the White House? We should inspire more kids like you, uh, like you, to like science. That's what makes America great. So, so if we could just talk about this with a moment of sanity. The, the police officers are bigots. The school administrators are bigots. They are Islamophobes, which is a new word that our culture has coined. That was, that was these people were accused of being. Okay, here's, here's what I want to say. I'm not trying to get political about this. What I want to say is this. Obama thinks it's a cool clock and would like him to bring it to the White House. What if instead of bringing it to school unannounced, which is what he did, he showed up at the White House with it unannounced? How warm a reception do you think he would have gotten? It doesn't need to be a 14-year-old Muslim kid. What if I brought that to the White House? I'd get to meet all kinds of people I wouldn't have met otherwise. (laughs) What if he had done it in October of 2001? Would anyone be called a racist? Would anyone be called a bigot? Nobody would. We would say, if you see something, say something. You did the right thing. Praise God, it was just a kid making a clock. And so, so I say that as a way of saying we have forgotten some significant things. The fact that this blew up the way it did, uh, blew up. I'm on a roll, guys. <laughs> it's happening. There's something in that water. The fact that this happened, the fact that it became like you're all racist, all of you, tells us we've forgotten some significant details about what life was like following September 11th. It has nothing to do with what ethnicity this young man was. It has to do with the device he brought to school. As a young white child in Topeka, Indiana, I had Optimus Prime, the transformer that looks like a gun, taken away from me at school. Even though it didn't look like a real gun, because you're not allowed to bring that stuff to school. And everybody freaks out because we have forgotten. Well, that's what we do. We're prone to forgetting. And throughout the Bible, the people of God are called to remember. In fact, as we read the Old Testament, one of the most significant forms of worship that we see is remembering. To worship is to remember. 
We're called to remember and to put certain things in place that will help us remember. Put certain things in place that will remind us, that will, will not let us forget. And Esther 9 is a chapter that's all about that. The, this passage that we read, the second half of this chapter, it's all about that. Putting something in place to help us remember, to remember what God has done. And so what were they remembering? Verses 24 and 25 says this, Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, lots, to crush and destroy them. When it came time for the king, he gave, or when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that an evil plan he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head. He and his son should be hanged on the gallows. So, so what are they remembering? They're remembering a significant event that had just happened wherein what looked like destruction for God's people ended up being liberation, where the tables were turned. And just to recap for those of you that maybe aren't familiar with the story of Esther, Esther centers around these two Jewish people who are living in Persia. Uh, God's people had been unfaithful. They had been removed from the promised land. They had been carried off into exile. Uh, and these, these two Jewish people, although the Jews now had the right to return home, had not chosen to do that. They were still in Persia, under the reign of, of, as our translation says, King Ahasuerus, his Greek name was Xerxes, that's how many of us know him uh, historically, under the reign of King Xerxes, and they're there in Persia, and there's an evil man, Haman, he's the number two in command in all of Persia, and he decides he hates Mordecai, Mordecai this Jewish man, but he decides, it's beneath me to kill Mordecai. I want to kill every Jew everywhere. And so he gets the king to issue this decree that on a certain date, everyone in the country is going to rise up and kill their Jewish neighbors. We're going to wipe them all off the face of the earth. Uh, but because they wanted the support of the gods, they decided to sort of roll the dice to figure out what the date would be. Uh, that's why it says that it, it cast lots, this, this purr. They cast the purr. So they did some sort of roll of the dice, and that's what told them what date. And basically the date they came up with was 11 months ahead. So this decree goes out, 11 months from now, on this day, you're going to rise up and kill every Jew that exists. And the place in the story we've just come through is how Haman was exposed, Haman was executed, uh, and the king says, I can't reverse this, but you can issue a decree to do anything you want. So they issued a decree uh, to the Jewish people on this day, 11 months from now, you can rise up and kill anyone that tries to kill you. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, when the Jewish people were attacked all throughout the empire of Persia, uh, they slaughtered their attackers. And that's where we're at in the story when we come to this. This is the relief that they're celebrating, that Haman's plans had, had been turned against him, that he'd been executed, his sons had been executed, the Jewish people had slaughtered her enemies. Verse 26 explains the name of this festival then they create, Purim. Uh, in some ways you could say the book of Esther exists to explain to us where the feast and festival of Purim came from. That's one of the big reasons for this book is so that we would know. And it tells us the name. It says it comes from the Persian word for lot, pur. It's called Purim for the Persian word for lot. So, so this festival, Purim, that they set up is, is literally a celebration. They even name it after the providence of God. If you haven't been around here a lot, you may not recognize that word providence. Providence means God is at work to accomplish his good purposes in the everyday events of life. In the choices people make, in the actions we take, God is actually behind the scenes working all of history to accomplish his good purposes. And this celebration is a celebration of that. This God who is sovereign, this God who rules, who reigns over history and the events of men. So, so we see in Haman these evil actions, these evil actions that actually come from his very soul. In other words, Haman does exactly what Haman wants to do in this story. Nobody is forcing Haman like some puppet uh, to do this or to do that. Haman is doing what Haman wants to do. But at the end of the story, we discover it's actually God working out his plan. Uh, so we see this in Proverbs. Proverbs 6.33 is a great illustration, especially with Purim and, and the name that they gave this festival. It says, the lot is caught, cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, the dice are rolled, but the every decision of the dice comes from God. So everything that happens, every roll of the dice is under the sovereign control of God. 
One of the things we've been seeing as we've been going through the book of Esther is that the fate of God's people is not dependent on a roll of the dice. This whole story kind of hinges on that. It hinges on the roll of the dice, on this date that is set for the destruction of the people. But we see as we've gone through this story that God has not left it to chance. God has not left the fate of his people to chance. We, we as God's people, are not just out bobbing around on a sea of chance, on a sea of what may happen. We're, we're also not held in the grip of these blind, deterministic forces. Things are just going to be what they're going to be. There's just some blind fate at work. That's not what God's word reveals to us. God's word reveals this. God's people are under the providential care of God. God has a plan. God is at work. His people are under his care. God is working all the events of life out, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, according to the eternal counsel of his will. According to this thing, Paul tells us where God is ultimately working to bring all things in heaven, all things on earth, underneath the authority, the rule, and the reign of Jesus Christ. And so all of the events of our life are under that umbrella. God is working in everything to do that, to bring all things under the authority of Christ. So so there's nothing that happens. There's no event in history. There's no discovery of science. There's no dramatic event in our life that, that will work against that. All of those things, all of those things are actually working towards that purpose of God. This purpose that before the feet of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All of the events of our life are working towards that. All of the events of history are working towards that. And Purim is a celebration of that truth. It's a celebration of a God who providentially cares for his people. And it's established so the people of God will never forget that. So the God's people. So so just want to look at this passage briefly with you. This passage tells us three things about how this festival, this Purim, this feast was established. It was recorded by Mordecai. It was accepted by the people. It was confirmed by Esther. So we're going to just kind of look at those three sort of category headings to help us understand what's going on. So Mordecai recorded these things. There had been this great deliverance. God's people had been set free from sure death and destruction. And there was this great deliverance, this overturning of circumstances that were hopeless. If the greatest empire in the world, we've talked a lot about this over the weeks, the empire of Persia is the greatest empire the world had known. It was so vast, it was so powerful, that the sun literally never set on all of it at the same time. It was this empire, and that empire had turned its attention to the Jews and said, you will be slaughtered. It looked hopeless, and yet God set them free. God delivered them. God turned the tables, and that led to spontaneous celebration, the kind of celebration you would expect someone to have that had been set free from a hopeless and a helpless situation. The people are happy. The people are rejoicing. We are alive. We are free. This spontaneous celebration, then, gets official status from Mordecai. That's what's going on. Mordecai recorded these things. Mordecai makes it official. And Mordecai makes it official so that this natural moment of celebration doesn't get lost over time. Have you ever had something really good happen in your life and in that moment you're like, things will never be the same for me again. And then you fast forward to about a month later and things feel awful the same. Well, so, so Mordecai records these events. They create this festival of Purim as a way of saying, over time, we do not want to lose the reality of what happened here. We don't want to forget what happened. The reality of this deliverance, we don't want that to be lost on future generations. We want all Jewish people forever to remember what happened here today. That's what we do with war memorials, right? That's what we do with these things. We say these are the things we will never forget. That's why when those towers came down on September 11th, they built giant things in their place. And there's a whole area down there devoted to what happened that day. We say we will never forget this. And and a thousand years from now, we want those generations to know what happened. And so that's what's going on with Purim. This is the pattern for God's people. This is what we see happening with God's people uh, throughout the Old Testament uh, they do this sort of thing. We, we often hear, we'll sing about one of these. We sing that song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And we sing that line. Maybe it's a line you've never known what it meant. It says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. 
Here by thy great help I've come. And maybe you've sang that song a lot of times and you've wondered, why is it that we sing about Scrooge in this song? That's a weird, it's just a weird thing to put in. In, in fact, we're not singing about Scrooge. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7. Samuel has led the nation of Israel in repentance while the nation is confessing their sin, while the nation is repenting before God in brokenness, the Philistines attack them. The Philistine, Philistines attack this nation in, in mourning and prayer and repentance, and God, it says, thundered against the Philistines. God absolutely destroyed the Philistines. It, uh, Israel utterly destroyed their attackers on that day as well. And Samuel put up a large stone and he called it Ebenezer, which means the stone of help because the Lord has helped us on this day. And so that every time you see that stone, you'll have a tangible reminder, God has helped us. God has thundered against our enemies. So when we see that, sing that song, here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come, we're singing about putting a signpost in the ground that says God has brought me this far. And because he's brought me this far, I know he'll bring me safely home. It's a, it's a powerful declaration that's being made. Joshua does this as well. Joshua makes a stone monument and he says, now in future years, when you bring your children here, you'll tell them what God has done for us. You'll bring your children. You'll look at this monument. You'll tell them what God has done. Without these stones, there would be no reminder. There'd be nothing to draw their attention back to that, to remind them. There'd be no point of reference, and that's why we have monuments. We have monuments all over this country. These, these places I love on vacation, being able to visit places and being able to say, on this very spot, this is what happened. This is the spot where this happened. That's what these things exist for, to remind us as a, as a tangible reminder. So Purim is a tangible reminder instituted to comm commemorate and celebrate what verse 22 says, the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. As the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into holiday. So I told you there's sort of a mass killing at the heart of what goes on in the book of Esther. Purim is not a celebration of a mass killing. Purim is a celebration of God's people getting rest from their enemies. God's people getting relief from their enemies. It's a celebration of sorrow being turned into gladness. Verse 22 goes on that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another, gifts to the poor. So, so they're sending gifts of food as a part of the celebration so that everybody can celebrate. Purim was to be a huge, massive celebration, and in God's economy, the poor are not second class citizens. Send food to people, send food to the poor. They should celebrate just like you're celebrating. So Mordecai records these things so that this will be remembered, so this will be memorialized and not forgotten in future generations. And it says the Jews accepted these things. Verse 23, the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. Verse 27, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these days according to what was written the time appointed every year. So it says they firmly obligated themselves. Mordecai wrote these things down and said, this is what we need to do to remember what God has done. And the, the, the people firmly obligated themselves. So it's not a case of, we'll think about it, Mordecai. We're definitely in a celebrating mood this year, but next year we got a lot on our calendar. We don't, don't know that we can give up two days for this. No, it was that we're doing this. That's the nature of obligation. The nature of obligation is we're doing this. This is what's happening. And, and, and in our day, the word obligation is somewhat of a dirty word, even inside the church. I don't want to make anyone feel obligated, especially in our, in our community, in our conservative Mennonite community. I don't want to obligate anyone. I would never want to do something like that. Well, the truth is I, I often want people to feel obligated. I very often want that. If I'm doing a job for someone and they're supposed to pay me, I want them to feel obligated to pay me. I want my wife to make me obligated to her entirely. I would not feel good if we got home today and she said, you know, do what you want. There's a lot of fish in this sea. I don't want that. I want her to say, no, no, you belong to me. That's how it's going to go. I want my kids to feel obligated to my parental authority in their life. 
Now, I'm coming up on a threshold with my son where he's about to leave our house and go to college. He's about to turn 18, and that dynamic is going to change. But while they're in my house, there is an obligation they've got. Uh, they are here this morning because they don't have a choice. They are under my authority. They're going to do what I say when it comes to these things. And, and so, so why do I want that? Am I just a terrible person? No, the, the truth is that the obligation that comes with these kind of personal relationships, it's actually an obligation to God, first and foremost. I want my children to honor me, not because I'm so honorable, but because they're honoring God when they honor their father. The, the, my, my obligation to my wife is not just because she's super awesome, which she is, not just because she's way out of my league, which is obvious to everyone. It is because God is honored. God is honored in that, and if I don't honor my wife, God is dishonored. Right? In fact, Peter says, God won't listen to my prayers if I'm harsh with her. So it's first and foremost an obligation to God. And the Jews have recognized that God has provided them this deliverance. Now, it's important for us to note obligation is not automatically the same thing as legalism. That's one of our great fears. We're so afraid of falling into legalism. Obligation and legalism are not the same thing. When I obligate myself to my wife, when I say, because, because I am to be a one-woman man, because I am committed to you, Andrea, I am never going to put myself in a compromising position to take a chance. I'm never going to be alone with another woman. I, I, I'm going to make these commitments so that I am, my obligation to you stays pure. Andrea is not super concerned about, let's not get legalistic now. Don't get, I, I appreciate what you're saying. Let's not get, she's not worried about that. She's like, yeah, it's good that you're never going to put yourself in that situation because I'd kill you. And, and so, she wouldn't kill me. She's too nice. We don't know. That was a, sin, that was a sinister look. No, what is it? This, this obligating of myself, this setting parameters for myself, committing myself to things is not legalism. It's an expression of my love for her. It's not an expression of, oh, i got to do this and i got to do that. No, it's, it's, it's an expression of love for my wife that I would do that. Yet so many Christians are afraid to make commitments to God because they're afraid of being religious or being legalistic. And we miss the fact that this is an expression of our love for God. I know my own weakness. I know my tendency towards laziness and forgetfulness. So, God, I will commit myself to these things. That's not legalism. That is valuing God enough to make some commitments. These people were not afraid of that. They committed themselves and their offspring. If we're afraid of that word obligation, how afraid are we of committing our offspring to things, of obligating them? It says they did that. We're not allowed as parents to obligate our children to anything in our culture. We can't make choices for them. They need to make their own choices. Now, we can make that choice for them to murder them while they're still in the womb. That's one choice we're allowed to make. That's our choice, not their, if you want death, that's my choice. Uh, just not allowed to decide whether little Billy gets to become little Betty. My little seven-year-old is going to get to decide what gender they're going to be. We can't choose that for them. What nonsense. What insanity. That's our world, though. I know people personally who are there. I know people personally, friends in my life, whose son decided he was a girl, and they said, well, we can't choose for him. God chose for him. <laughs> and that's the world we live in. We can't commit our kids. They obligated themselves. They obligated their kids. Should we, should we talk this morning about the parents who've decided their teenagers get to decide whether they come to church or not? Or would that be crossing a line? I won't bring it up. I won't bring it up. They obligated themselves, they obligated their children, and all who joined them. If you were here for the end of chapter 8, remember it said uh, after this decree went out that the Jews were going to be able to uh, deal harshly with those who attacked them, that a lot of people decided, I think I'll be a Jew too. I think I'm, I think I'm getting in on this. And, and so lots of people had decided to become Jews, well they obligated them too. They obligated everybody, and, and this is the truth folks. Our willingness or unwillingness 
to obligate those within our sphere of influence, it speaks loud and clear about the things that are important to us, about the things that are vital to us. As a parent, the things I'm willing to obligate my kids to, that tells them what's important to me. And if I tell them, do this or don't, sometimes we'll be going out somewhere for dinner, and I'll say, come or don't come. What have I communicated to them? It's not a huge deal. If I'm getting up for church on Sunday morning and I look to my son and he's getting ready to come out with me and I said, Asher, come or don't come, at this point it's up to you. I've also communicated something pretty powerful to him about how important I think it is to gather with God's people on a Sunday morning, about whether I think something supernatural actually happens when we come together. And so our willingness or unwillingness to obligate people around us, it speaks to the things that are important to us. And the truth is, not everything can be so important that we obligate people to it. But there are some things we ought to think are that important. Well, notice how comprehensive this obligation is, verse 28. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city. That these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. That is quite a commitment. But that's how great this deliverance was. This, this recognition that God has set us free. So every person, every generation, forever. That's what the obligation was that was made. And the truth is the Jews still celebrate Purim. It's one of the huge deals in the Jewish community. Two and a half thousand years later, Purim is still a big deal. Why? Because of the end of Esther 9. Because of what we just read. It's a huge deal. And this, folks, is why we have to celebrate and teach the gospel. This is why we have to hold the line. This is why we have to instill it in our children. It's why we have to uphold it from generation to generation so that if, if Christ doesn't return for another thousand years, there will be those who say, it was because of my father. It was because of my grandfather. It was because of my great, great, great grandfather that I'm here today. This is why we must Hold the line. That, that future generations would say, I stand here today a son or a daughter of the King of Kings, of the Lord of Lords, because we, ob we were obligated when the world around us refused. When the world around us says, you don't need to be obligated to anything. You need to live for the moment. You need to live in the now. You need to, to, to do your own thing. The thing that really matters is this moment. And the truth, Christians, is that that's not true at all. It's not all about the moment. It's all about God. And if we think otherwise, we are sadly wasting our life. We are sadly destroying future generations. It is all about God. It's actually all about what happened in the past. It's all about what happened in the past giving significance to now. Living for now as if now is all there is, it has no significance. It has no meaning. It, it's pointless. The past informs now, and, and now has a place in the future. That's the Christian life. It's not now is all there is. We are not called to think like the rest of the world. And so often we do. So often we do. Well, so Mordecai recorded these things. The people received and accepted these things. They obligated themselves. And then Esther confirmed these things. Verse 29, Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, the words of peace and truth, and that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to the fasts and their lamenting. Verse 32, the command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. History matters. Tradition matters. The history and tradition we're talking about here that matter are particularly the history and tradition of God's people. That, that matters. On, on vacation this summer, we went out to, uh, to Boston area, and we were staying 
uh, kind of off, off the ocean in, in this little town called Plymouth in this little theater colony. There was this little theater, sort of like the Round Barn Theater at Amish Shakers, uh, like right outside our back door. So Andrea and I decided to go over there and we watched Fiddler on the Roof in a really like unbelievably hot barn. Uh, like really hot, especially if you're super fat. And, and we watched Fiddler on the Roof and it begins with this song, Tradition, this Tevia, the sort of main character of, of Fiddler on the Roof. And he's talking about tradition. He's singing about tradition. He says, tradition teaches us who we are. Tradition tells us about God and what God expects from us. Well, obviously, when we talk about this tradition and this history that reveals this, we're talking about the tradition God has delivered to us in his word. We're talking about the history that God has given us. We don't build our theology on extra-biblical tradition. We don't find some tradition outside of this and say, I'm going to base everything on that. We believe in this other great Reformation battle cry, sola scriptura, that the scripture alone is the sole authority for our lives, the sole authority for our practice. But the Apostle Paul says it like this, Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. So here's what it means. Here's what it means for everything written in the former days, and he's talking about the Old Testament. Here's what it means for that to have been written for our instruction, that that through endurance, through the encouragement that comes from that, we might have hope. It means when we read the book of Esther, that Esther is part of our spiritual heritage as Christians. That's what that means. That Esther has been given to us by God so that we would trust him more. And when we read about this, this story of Esther, this establishment of Purim, this celebration of the God who's providentially working all things out for the good of his people, it is a powerful story. It's a powerful truth. So powerful, in fact, that in the Nazi prison camps, anyone who had a copy of Esther was killed on the spot. They killed him on the spot if they had a copy of Esther because it was such a significant, powerful testimony about what God would do for his people. It literally gave them hope, and the Nazis didn't want them to have hope. It was such a powerful story that although it was illegal to have them, many many of the Jewish prisoners in the prison camps copied down the book of Esther word for word from memory because it gives, gives hope and inspired hope. But here's the thing, Christians... The significance of Esther has been transformed by Jesus Christ. Think of of those Jewish prisoners in the Nazi camps, most of them not Christian, most of them rejecting Jesus Christ the Messiah, most of them missing the point of Esther, still drawing hope for it. How much more has that hope been transformed by the work of Jesus Christ, who also said of the Old Testament writings, they testify about me. Esther's hope has been transformed. The deliverance of God's people in the Old Testament is pointing to the great deliverance in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Matthew 27, verse 37, says this. Over his head, that's Jesus, they put the charge against him which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left, Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So as Christ hangs on the cross in torment and in agony, those around him mock him. Those who are being tortured with him mock him. Those who are torturing him mock him. Those in the crowd who've just come to see the spectacle, they mock him. And their question is, your God delivers people, then why hasn't he delivered you? The God you you say you serve, Jesus, he delivers his people. Why hasn't he delivered you? That's the big question. Why didn't God deliver Jesus 
from the cross? And the answer is this. He didn't deliver Jesus because Jesus was delivered up for us. Jesus could have come down from the cross. He said so. He didn't because he was delivered up on our behalf. Paul says this in virtually all of his letters. Galatians 1, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So why was Jesus not delivered? Jesus was not delivered so that we might be delivered. So that we might be delivered from the punishment he bore on our behalf on that cross. Colossians 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. Romans 4, verse 24, the second half. Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So God delivers his people, but Jesus was not delivered. Jesus was delivered up for his people so that because Jesus was raised from the dead, we would be raised. We we saw this image in baptism, buried with Christ and raised to newness of life. What this means for us is this, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. We celebrate Easter in a special way, but, but listen, every time we come together, that's why the church meets on Sunday. The Jews always held Saturday as the Sabbath. Why did that change? It changed because Jesus rose from the dead. Every Sunday is a tangible reminder that Jesus Christ is risen, and because he has risen, we too will rise. There's two things that we'll do today. One we've already done, one we'll do here shortly that remind us of this, baptism and communion. Two things that were ordained by Jesus as visible symbols of this grace. The kind of things we're talking about with Purim as a monument to God's grace. Visible reminders, tangible representations of the gospel and the Spirit's application of the gospel to our life. What, what God has done in our lives. What that gospel message means to us. They help us remember God's goodness. They help us remember God's grace and especially as it is revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They picture Christ's death and resurrection, our participation in his death and resurrection because we are united to him in faith. And so so when these people entered the waters in baptism, when many of us that are Christians, when we entered the waters in baptism, even when we watch other people be baptized, that's why we do this publicly, that's why we love uh, to be here and be, to do this up front and in front of everyone. When we see this happen, we're reminded that Christ was crucified and raised. Christ died and rose from the dead. And that we too have died to our old self and now live for Christ. It is a beautiful, tangible reminder that God has given us. Every time we celebrate communion, which we're going to do here in moments, we do it in remembrance of Jesus. This is another feast that God has given to his followers. We see all kinds of feasts throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Christ institutes a new feast, a feast of a new covenant. Jesus says, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So when we break the bread together, when we drink from the cup, we remember what Jesus did on the cross, what he bore for us, the punishment he took that was rightly ours, that that my sins were placed on him. Martin Luther, who we talked about earlier, called what happened on the cross of Christ the great exchange, where the sinless, almighty Son of God took my sins upon himself and in exchange gave me his righteousness. That's what we celebrate when we come to, to the table, when we come to communion. That God has opened up a way for us to walk. God has opened up a way for us to be reconciled to him. And Jesus said to them, as he was instituting this new feast, this new feast of a new covenant, he said, remember this too. That as surely as I'm going, I'm coming back. So when we come to the table, we're remembering all that God has done and we're remembering those things which he has promised us he will do. 
some of us are going through a study together, a little discipleship study, and, and this week, uh, one of the things that our study said that was so profound is God owes you nothing except that which he has promised you. Jesus obligated himself. As surely as I'm going, I'm coming back. He's coming back for you, Christian. We remember that when we come to this table. So worship team, if you want to make your way up, as we come to the table this morning, a couple things I want to remind us of. This feast that, that Christ instituted, this feast of the new covenant, it's for Christians only. It's, it's only for those who've experienced this great deliverance that we celebrate. The Apostle Paul even gives stern warnings to, to coming to this table in a matter that's unworthy. And so because we love you, I want to issue that same warning. This is only for Christians. We've got a lot of visitors here. Uh, many of you are visiting. You've come to see baptisms, but you're a part of another church. You're committed. You're walking with the Lord. Jesus Christ is, is your Lord. Jesus Christ is your Savior as well. You have, in obedience to him, committed yourself to his people. And I would say, if you are here this morning, we would love to share in this feast with you. We would love to share in communion with you as brothers and sisters, where we remember that we've been united to God and we've been united to each other. Even if we're from different denominations, even if we're part of different local fellowships, that God has made us his bride, his church, and we want you to celebrate. But if, if that's not you, if you have not surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus, if you're walking in willful disobedience to him and to his word, I mean, maybe this is even your church. Maybe you're not even a visitor, but you're walking in disobedience. Then I would urge you not to come to this table this morning. Take this time to, to repent. Take this time to turn your eyes towards God, to ask him for his mercy, to, to, to trust in him, to ask him for that gift of faith. He will in no way turn you away. If you come to him in faith, he will accept you. But this is only for Christians, for those who have experienced this deliverance, for those who can say, I was dead and God made me alive. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I can see. And, and this person who was in the grave that God reached down and lifted up and gave new life to. That life I now live, I live for the God who delivered me. And if that's you this morning, whether this is your home church or not, we would love to share in the table together with you.